0: I'm Garrison Doctor.
1: And I'm Corinne Doctor.
0: And this is Fishing Stories.
1: Fly fishing takes us to incredible places, right in our backyard and across the world. We're here to tell the stories of those
0: adventures. On our episode, we call up our good friend Lucas Bissett down in Louisiana.
1: And Lucas is a fly fishing guide, and a fellow board member of the American Fly Fishing Trade Association. And being a guide in Louisiana, we surprisingly talk about more than just redfish.
0: There's maybe even a steelhead story in there.
1: So let's get going. Lucas, what's up?
2: What is going on, guys?
1: Oh man, just a beautiful day here. It's finally spring.
0: Yeah, looking, yes. looking kind of nice here in Colorado, finally. Awesome. Yeah, I was wondering,
2: you know, that's one thing that Mother Nature has definitely done for us down here in Louisiana is she has provided some unusually beautiful days this time of year. I mean, typically it's, it's warm-ish and... Um, not a whole lot of rain this time of year but uh, we don't typically get just like calm days and it not get above like 75 so it's it's been beautiful and nice but it's also a bit torturous and so I guess that's you (laughs) kind of take the good with the bad.
1: Um, So we know you're in Louisiana but why don't you just uh, introduce yourself paint a picture for the beautiful place where you live and work and play and what it is that you do.
2: Sure so I am a captain lucas spissett from a little town called new roads louisiana i currently live in slidell which is just west of the mississippi border i have been guiding for redfish with a fly rod now for almost 10 years professionally i'm an orvis endorsed guide i was honored with the orvis endorsed saltwater guide of the year in 2017 awesome awesome yeah thank you thank you um that was something that I set out to do uh, as soon as I became overs endorsed in 2012, and uh, was able to achieve that in 2017. Would love to win it again. You know, I keep, I keep striving. It, yeah. One wasn't one <laughs> isn't enough for me. That's just how I am. <laughs> just
1: have the mantle yeah. plastered with the awards.
2: Oh yeah. Oh, I wanted I wanted to just look like. Uh,
0: Tom Brady's living room. Yeah, exactly.
2: exactly. Yeah, yeah, there you I go. Be the, I want to be the Tom Brady of, of Orvis and Guys. Not that I should be
0: saying anything positive about the Pats on this podcast, yeah. even though Tom Brady <laughs> is now a Buccaneer, because I am a diehard Broncos fan. I just want to like make that clear for the people now. Well,
2: <laughs> and, and now I have to not like him, because he's in our division as yeah. a Saints fan.
0: There so. you go. Uh,
1: what type of scene are you guiding on
2: okay well louisiana and specifically the area that i fish um we're really blessed with sort of two different fisheries so in the spring and summer so now we have this really cool interior marsh that is a culmination of brackish and freshwater and so you end up with this you know i guess what you would consider the picturesque swampy sort of feel of louisiana where on any given day you're going to see alligators you're going to see really cool bird life Um, the water gets really clean because it gets mechanically filtered by the grass that grows in the water but the grass is actually freshwater grass so you get like hydrilla and coontail and so it's this really neat opportunity where you can actually catch largemouth bass and redfish in the same place
1: oh my god that's amazing
2: yeah, there are not many places in this world that you can do that. So, um that interior marsh is sort of our spring and summer and then in the fall and winter we have our out, outside or exterior marsh which is closer to the Gulf of Mexico, um going to be more like oyster flats and saltier water, uh typically chasing larger bull redfish in those areas and um a lot more open water sort of uh, feel. So it's um
1: so you know, you're saying we have to schedule two different trips. <laughs>
2: two trips. Yes. Yeah. yes. Well, the one, thing, the one thing that I definitely want to make sure people understand about Louisiana is that it's a year-round fishery. Yeah. We, we have the opportunity to catch redfish from January to December. Um, they're going to be differing sort of conditions and maybe differing sizes of fish based on time of year. But the reality is, is that Louisiana is a year-round fishery. It is not just... October through December so um, that is something that I really think is important and I really wish I could get the word out more about that because right now there's some amazing things happening that not many people know about because you know all the publicity and the popularities come around the fall
1: yeah it's all that bull red mania yes exactly (laughs) (laughs) well the marsh fishing sounds heavenly to me garrison and i are also bird watchers by nature and practice so
0: yeah around
1: in that kind of habitat sounds
0: yeah just tooling around in that in that kind of uh ecosystem would be a fun day for us
2: well it's it's a lot of like twists and turns and small trenaces and bayous and so it's it's also sort of again you know that you're inside of the, you know sort of a secret place kind of stuff. You know you can you can really zip through there with your skiff and and give people an exciting sleigh ride while you're getting to the spots and like I said, then once it starts, it's just a matter of how many different things are you going to see, how many different versions of, of, you know, all sorts of wildlife, everything from snakes to alligators to birds to, you know, uh, mammals too, with nutriorets and raccoons and, you know, just all sorts of stuff. And then inside the water, you've got all this bait fish and redfish and bass and trout and crabs and, you know, just everything. So, I mean, there's tons of stuff to look at. So even if you're not getting a bunch of shots, still just getting opportunity to see all sorts of cool stuff
1: all right I'm in I'm sold
2: yeah (laughs) love it
1: (laughs) well as you know we're here to talk uh fishing and fishing stories so I hear you've got one queued up for us
2: yeah you know I um this is something that is is kind of special and, and sort of near and dear to my heart because it's it's my personal story and sort of the transition that I made from you know, someone growing up in Louisiana and, and all that that means as far as conservation and stewardship and how fly fishing basically changed my life. And, um, you know, it, it starts once upon a time. Um, I was a I was a young lad here in Louisiana. Uh, started bass fishing with my dad at the age of four or five, and became what I would consider a pretty prolific bass fisherman at a very young age. Uh, we did it all the time. It was the you know the sort of the connection that we had. You know, looking back on it now, I realized that there was there was never really a focus on how many fish were being taken or any sort of responsibility to the, to the fishery or to the environment. You know, I don't want to make it sound like my dad didn't have a clue as to what he should be doing or what was the right thing, but it just wasn't something that we ever focused on. And, you know, as I, as I sort of went through the years, this was just imprinted on me because it was what we did. You know, you went out and you caught as many fish as you could. I never remember hearing about the law or limits or any of those things. And so I didn't have respect for the fishery that we were in all the time. I didn't see it for what it was worth. I simply saw it as a makeshift grocery store. You know, that was basically the way that my dad always treated it. And so, and it wasn't again, you know, nothing against that except whenever you realize that if everyone has that mentality, it becomes really hard for there to be sustainability. I would never trade any of that for for the world because I became an avid fisherman in those years. You know, those are truly the formidable years of my life where fishing became an escape. Even though I don't I don't necessarily view the way I was raised as responsible, it definitely changed me as a person and it made me into someone who could see fishing as an as an escape, as an outlet. It saved me from doing a lot of stupid. As a, as a young teen <laughs> I can assure <laughs> you of that <laughs> um, you know there, there's no doubt that if I wouldn't have had a rod in my hand I would have had other things that weren't good so um, you know I appreciate it like, like I, I, I appreciate it to another level but I also realized as I've gotten older that um, there just wasn't ever any discussion about what was the right thing what was the wrong thing how the ecosystem worked You know i just i just didn't get any of that stuff and so fast forward a little bit to you know getting a little bit older um we actually moved away from louisiana uh, after my parents divorced when i was pretty young and i moved to missouri with my mom and my uh, stepdad and at 12 years old i got a fly rod for christmas from my step-grandmother, who, uh, you know, nicest lady on the planet, uh, took us in like we were her own grandkids and gave me this fly rod from probably Walmart or somewhere like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, for sure. And, and, yeah, yeah. It came in a kit, you know, that was wrapped in
0: plastic and, you oh, know, there yeah. was nothing, nothing Was the fly line neon green?
2: yes oh yes perfect that's
0: what you want in the starter kit probably
2: probably radioactive (laughs) yeah that's what you want you know just just low levels of radiation yeah um (laughs) but but yeah you know came with like even a flyer too i think you know like it was it was the full package probably for the low price of fourteen dollars but (laughs) um I I took that fly rod, and this was before YouTube and stuff, you know, I mean, I was, I'm 40, so that was a while back, and I just started playing with it and, and, and incorporating it into the style of fishing that I was doing, which was bass fishing, and then, you know, and also pan fish at the time, and... At that moment in time, it didn't necessarily have the same sort of transitional qualities that I'm going to talk about later, but it definitely it planted a seed. You know, one of the things that you realize as you as you get older and you start to reflect back is that what happens is that when you're focused on catching fish, you don't focus on anything else and you never look outside of the boat Yeah. Or the or your feet or the water that's directly in front of you. You never, ever have a chance to look up and appreciate what's around you. And so by using that fly rod and not having many skills, it forced me to slow down. It forced me to look up. It forced me to do things that I'd never done before. Because whenever you learn something at a young age, you get pretty good at it. And, and so I never had to look up. I was always focused solely on how, you know, the feel that I was trying to get from, you know, the bass taking that rubber worm, or a bass hitting a spinner bait or a bass hitting a topwater plug, or whatever it was. And so I just never looked around. And so even though at 12 years old, I didn't make the, the full transition, I definitely started down that path. So fast forward again, now I'm in college, um, I've put down fishing altogether, uh, you know, started to focus on other things, um, you know, working, going to school, going to college. But fishing was still there in the back of my mind i kept it i held on to it i I definitely still appreciated it i did it when people invited me but it wasn't something that i that i I seek to do on a regular basis so i graduated college and i moved back to louisiana something i claimed i never would do never (laughs) say never right (laughs) i moved back to louisiana and was introduced to redfish For the first time in my life even though i grew up in louisiana the thing thing that's kind of interesting about louisiana and maybe this is a personal experience and maybe i'm talking out of turn here but there seems to be a divide that happens in sort of the fisheries that people focus on so i'm from north of i-10 which runs through the sort of southern middle of the state and we never came to the coast like it just wasn't anything my dad was ever interested in like he didn't care about redfish or speckled trout or anything that happened on the coast that's
0: so all about bass. interesting like being from in colorado obviously it's like hard to fathom that because it's so close it's well, like no. how okay. could so you our
1: stereotype is like well louisiana is a coastal right. state exactly so you go there
0: too. we think of louisiana yeah. and we think redfish just because that's that's, that's our we,
1: own bias that's
0: what we see yeah that's our well, own bias. right
1: right
2: Yeah, that's that's what you're being that's what you're being inundated with in this industry, you know, because that's the popular thing to do with a fly rod. But I can tell you that we never even discussed the coast. I mean, it wasn't even, like, part of the conversation. It wasn't like, hey, Dad, have you ever known anyone to go redfishing? Like, none of that ever happened. There was never a moment where we even talked about the coast of Louisiana. It was wow. all about where we were. And, and granted, you know, again, you have to think back that this was 30-some-odd years ago, and there wasn't social media, and there wasn't the exposure. Right, and so right. your, your world was much smaller. And so I think it was just a product of the time, too, in that, you know, my dad wasn't going to drive two and a half hours one way to go catch a fish that probably to him tasted the same as the fish that he could catch two and a half minutes away. Right. And so it just didn't make sense. It's again, it's about the fact that this isn't about sport. It's about food. And so if all you're doing is catching food, who cares what that food is? And I'm not saying that we were so poor or destitute that we were having to catch these things in order to survive. We weren't. But it's just one of those things that, you know, just wasn't in in the realm of our our existence or world. So when I got introduced to redfish for the first time, and as a bass fisherman, an avid bass fisherman, I can tell you that redfish make bass look like the wimpiest little pricks <laughs> on the planet. <laughs> because everything a bass does, a redfish does, as far as the way they fight, the way that they consume the same lures and baits, they're in the same spots. It's a very similar fishing style if you're doing it with conventional tackle. But the fight, is unbelievable in comparison. I can remember to this day, the first redfish that I caught, I can remember exactly where we were on the bank. I can tell you exactly where we were in the boat. I can tell you exactly what it felt like because it was like, opening some sort of box that I didn't know existed, that had all the best drugs that I never took. (laughs) And I was in like nirvana for that one moment. I was like, oh my God, like you can catch something that is exactly like catching a bass, but one the same size as probably the biggest bass that I've ever caught, pulls drag like there's no tomorrow, and the screaming of that reel is singing to my ears. And so it was was amazing, uh, to say the least. And so the idea of a bass at that point... That was like an old girlfriend. I kicked that bitch out. Like, you gone. <laughs> I, I,
0: never,
2: I never went back, at, you know, for, for, for the same feeling. It was like I had tasted opium and there was no need to do weed anymore. Like I was, that's where I was. And so having that experience, you know, I, be, I became obsessed with going to the coast. I, I went from the person who had never been to the coast to the person who wouldn't see it any other way. And so I started fishing a lot. On the coast, I was driving two and a half hours one way. I was doing it like two or three times a week and just getting my fix of redfish. And I can remember to this day the moment that I saw a video, you know, YouTube or whatever had started. And I remember seeing someone catch a redfish on a fly rod. And at that moment, my worlds collided. And I realized I can take this thing that I have been doing for you know, a couple of years now and finding absolutely fascinating. And I can bring in something that brought me joy when I was younger and I can make those two worlds come together and I can have an experience like no other. And so that was like the next phase. And that's where the true transition started. So I started fly fishing for redfish. Not very well, mind you. I realized very quickly that I didn't know how to cast. (laughs) I realized very quickly that I didn't know anything about how to find a redfish that I needed to see. You know, one of the advantages of of conventional tackle is that you don't have to see the fish. Right. You get to cover so much water that you can you can just cast however you want to cast. You know, it's like no big deal. You just go and hit the spot (laughs) you think they're gonna be, and because you're using something that vibrates or or, you know, makes all sorts of flash or Splash, or whatever, that they're going to come find it, most likely. You know, I had a very big learning curve of figuring out how to find these redfish so that I could catch them with this primitive tool that wasn't very good at catching redfish. <laughs> <laughs> and,
1: I mean, I will say and, that saltwater will humble everyone, period. I and, mean, we're, we're trap geeks over here, and uh, saltwater taught us that we don't know how to cast as well as we thought, we don't have the same eyes that we thought we had.
0: <laughs> it's a different well, world. I mean, like,
2: it, it is, and, as, and that's the thing is that you know anything that you're not used to is going to humble you, or at least it should. <laughs> and so you know there's just there's just going to be a transition that happens, and there's going to be a learning curve, and it's going to be steep. And you're right, you know, saltwater fly fishing is a whole different animal, especially when you're talking about sight fishing, because now you're not casting to a spot, you're casting to a fish that is moving, that has its own mind, while the boat is moving. And so there's all sorts of new variables that you're adding into it that people who trout fish on a regular basis just don't realize. Like, damn, there's like an actual accuracy involved that I don't Mm -hmm. normally have to deal with. (laughs) Right. And so, you know, going into this primitive style of red fishing and learning as I was going once again forced me to slow down. And this time when I slowed down and this time when I looked up, I realized there was a whole world that I had been missing and a world that was absolutely gorgeous and had so much more to offer than catching that fish. And so from that moment forward, I changed from being a fisherman to a steward. And I can tell you that that has been one of the wildest rides that I've been on in my life. It's been one of the most rewarding. I can't even express what it means to me to leave something better than when I found it. And when I stopped looking inside the boat, worrying about catching a limit, and I started looking at the environment and the ecosystem around me, I realized that I had to do something to make a difference because just using it felt shameful to a certain degree and coming home to my son who at this point had been born and realizing that I owed him the opportunity to experience this the way that I did and knowing what Louisiana is going through currently with land loss I said that I had to do something yeah and so that's where that's where the transition from guy who went out and obsessively fished three days a week to the guy who went out and obsessively tried to change where he fished three days a week was like a whole new world That's pretty cool. So it's been fun. I mean, and and obviously that's led into all sorts of things. I mean, yeah, I was going to say,
1: I know that you have a couple of programs and whatnot that you work with. And I'd love to hear a little more about those.
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, initially at the time that I started this transition, I was working for Louisiana State University and I was doing coastal restoration work. So, you know, another sort of piece to the puzzle is that I was I was in charge of trying to come up with what they call releases, like public releases of marsh grass that would be sold to the public in order to be used in restoration. And we were trying to find marsh grasses that had certain characteristics and different sort of DNA so that if the current release that was out there, which is only one, were to get a disease, that you would have alternatives that could be you know, healthy because Mm. the last thing you want to do is plant all the same grass. Right. And then something happened to that grass and then everything gets wiped out because it's all the same grass. So, you know, I, I started to gather some information and knowledge about coastal restoration. I made network, you know, with people and, and other stuff that we were doing. And so when I left LSU to become a full-time guide, I took those network and those connections with me. And so when I started to work on the original project that I, I'm working on, which is the black mangrove project, I was able to just plug in all of that connection and network and was able to procure like a thousand plants the first year. And so it, it made the transition a lot easier. But in 2016, I was pulling along a flat in, in the marsh and I saw a black mangrove that I'd seen many times and I thought to myself wow wouldn't it be cool if I could help bring more mangroves out here which are native to Louisiana and are great coastal restoration tools and at first, it was a little bit selfish because I was like, "Man, if I could put these mangroves out here, it would create a natural windbreak." Because <laughs> one thing that Louisiana doesn't have many of is trees
0: in the marsh. Yeah. And so, so this all comes boat. back to more fish in the boat, is what you're telling <laughs> me here, Lucas. You needed the windbreak so you could get a few more eats, is what you're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> Look,
2: I didn't say I trained. I didn't say I changed
1: completely.
0: Gears, yeah. Okay. All right, all right. All right. That's fair. That's fair.
1: <laughs> Although, in all fairness, I mean. As you know, we are incredibly dedicated to conservation ourselves. But also, one of the ways to get people dedicated to conservation is to show them how it can benefit them recreationally or generationally, like you mentioned. That's how you get people to care.
2: Sure. I mean, look, if this place wasn't beautiful and full of fish... Nobody would give a care about it, you know. Exactly. So you gotta, you gotta have that abundance and that, you know, that resiliency in those stocks in order for it to last for generations, like you're talking about. And you also need those fish out there for it to be a lure, you know, or appealing to get people out there. So it's cyclical. It's like a big circle, you know. If you can't just have one without the other, and and one breeds the other. You know. While while I know you were kidding, I mean, there was a bit of a selfish you know MO there and that yes of course i as a as a guide especially you know anything i could do to make my client's day that much better i'm into it right. and if i'm also helping our ecosystem at the same time that's a win win for so,
1: sure You know, that was the initial thought process anyway. It quickly morphed into, you know,
2: just something bigger than me. From that little, you know, sort of idea has spawned this four-year project, and now we've planted over 5,000 mangroves. And the coolest part of it is the community outreach, because earlier we were talking about how I, two and a half hours away from the coast, never went to the coast here's something that's really going to blow your mind is that the kids that we have involved at the the local high school down there in st bernard parish most of those kids live 10 minutes from the coast and a good portion of them have never been in a boat
0: wow yeah
2: so that was absolutely mind-boggling to me right because because i grew up in a family that fishing was life like that's what you did it was fishing wasn't baseball, wasn't soccer. It was fishing. And so, you know, for me, having grown up in the sportsman's paradise in Louisiana, you would think that other kids who are that close to this Mecca would have done it too, but they don't. They had never even been in a boat. They'd never seen the coast. And so an opportunity to get them on a boat for the first time, to see a place that they were almost a stone's throw away from and get them to experience it through conservation has been absolutely enlightening. I mean, that to me, has been the biggest part of this thing. You know, the mangroves are going to do what the mangroves are going to do, and there's some coastal restoration that's happening, and there's shoreline stabilization, and there's all these educational opportunities. But that community outreach was absolutely phenomenal for me because it allowed me to show kids the excitement of a fishery, and without even fishing.
1: Yeah, that's so cool. How cool is that? Yeah. (laughs) You know, like... In some of my work with Trout Unlimited, you know, being a woman in the fishing and conservation world, often I'm asked like, oh, how do you get more women and children involved? And I don't have the answers, but the research and surveys show that women and kids want to be more involved in conservation because they have volunteer boots on the ground activities. And women and kids tend to have kind of that same that same line of thought is if I can get in there, get my hands dirty and see and interact with the place, I'm going to care more.
2: There's something to that. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that in this world of, of the virtual, you know, that we live in, especially now that's been heightened even more. The one thing you don't get a lot is the, the sense of accomplishment that comes from watching something grow. There's something to planting something in the ground, getting your hands dirty, and seeing the actual result of your work. Not many people get that opportunity anymore. You know, especially if you're out there and you're in the corporate world and you're out there, you don't see the product of your work. And so giving someone the opportunity to see it and watch it grow and take care of it and give them a sense of responsibility they don't currently have, there's something to that that changes their mindset. I can tell you that if for no other reason doing this project, if it wasn't for the fact that these kids went out there, I didn't see one of them with their cell phone, Phone out there was no bickering and fighting they all created these like two-person teams and they were like competing with each other to see who could plant the most plants <laughs> and they were having a good time hmm. and for two or three hours they forgot about the virtual world and all the bullshit that comes with it yeah and they just got an opportunity to connect with nature and there's something there that's visceral
0: i couldn't agree and- more i think it's so important now more than ever
2: I mean, it's it's so easy to lose sight of where we came from, not just in your lifetime, but in all the lifetimes. And the fact that we came from people who were out there hunting and gathering and doing all the things that generationally have disappeared over time. You know that transition for me at that moment in time was pivotal. pivotal. Yeah, am I saying that right? Yep,
0: <laughs> that's that's the word. You nailed that one.
2: <laughs> Dang! It would have only been good if I didn't ask if that was the right. <laughs> <one>. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah that was that was a huge that was a huge mark in my life that, that really changed me and 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 the other people getting to experience the stuff that they've experienced for the first time changed me too because as guides you know one of the things that we do is we live vicariously through someone else right like exactly. i only i can only catch my first redfish once but every time you catch your first redfish i'm getting to do it again right you know so i'm getting to chase the
0: dragon with you Yep. And so it, it only made sense that this was just as rewarding, but for a completely different reason. I got to see someone's connection with nature happen for the
2: first time. It, it reconnects me in a new way every time. So I'm, I'm going to get off the whole spiritual, you know, uh, sort of hippy-dippy stuff. But like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest. Like, that's the kind of stuff that, that helps me sleep at night. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that, that takes all the years that i didn't know any better and makes them okay yeah i mean because i mean the truth is is that you have to know where you came from in order to appreciate where you're going and so if i wouldn't have had those experiences it wouldn't have made this as as special it wouldn't have made me as passionate i don't think because i got to see what it was like to just use a resource and now i get to see what it's like
0: to protect it i love it (laughs) well we appreciate you sharing it
2: yeah well i'm glad you were here to listen
0: Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) because otherwise i'd just be talking to myself (laughs) (laughs)
1: which happens enough these days
2: oh no doubt i have had many conversations with
1: (laughs) (laughs) uh well you teased that you might have a uh fishing focus story not just conservation now that we've solved all the world's problems
2: (laughs) right now we've got that behind us yes (laughs) There it is. So we did it on one podcast. (laughs) Um, This is a story about my first and only experience steelhead fishing. Oh,
0: Oh, I love steelhead. So I'm into this one, too.
2: Okay, okay. So, as we know, I'm from Louisiana, and so trout in general are not my forte. So you can imagine that steelhead, which are much harder, in my opinion,
0: are really not my forte.
1: I think in everyone's opinion. Yeah,
0: in anybody who's fished for (laughs) steelhead's opinion, I would say. Okay, so you have to understand that I come from a warm place.
2: I enjoy being warm. Steelhead don't typically live in warm places.
0: No, they do not.
2: So my first experience... And I, I absolutely had a good time. So let me preface with that. <laughs> Was fishing for steelhead in the Tillamook region of Oregon.
1: Great. We both and, went to school very close. I to have
0: there. fished that region many, many times.
2: So you have probably fished in the rivers that I'm about to describe.
0: Yep. yep. It
2: should be the Nehalem. Yep. The Nistuka, yep. the Nastucca.
0: The
1: Nastucca, the only steelhead river I've fished.
0: Mm-hmm. And the Wilson. The Wilson. Yeah. You didn't fish the Trask. I did not. I did not make it there. All right. I fished
2: the the, the Nahalem twice. There you go. And then a stuck in the Wilson. I fished for four days.
0: Those coastal rivers are beautiful.
2: Absolutely gorgeous. I can tell you that if for no other reason I would go back, it would be to see those giant fir trees on those hillsides. And just an entirely different landscape than I have ever, ever been a part of. Now, I will also say that I don't wade fish very often (laughs) but in this story i was asked to wade fish for some of it the first morning on the Nehalem, i will also say that i don't own a pair of waders i will also say that i'm scared of heights so all of those so all of those things play into this story (laughs) so i am in near the Nehalem with a buddy And we are driving to the spot. And as someone who lives in a state where the highest point is 280 feet, not kidding, (laughs) driving along those cliffs of Dover in a car with a person who is not scared of heights and has driven those logging roads a thousand times... I can tell you that like a new puppy, I was sitting in his lap because (laughs) my side of the vehicle was hanging over the side of the cliff.
0: (laughs) In your mind, at least.
1: Welcome to the West, buddy. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yes. (laughs)
2: And to top off all of that, I get car sick.
0: Oh, no. Oh, no.
2: I did not throw up. I want to just go ahead and just put that out there. There's no vomiting. But I was scared to death in this vehicle. So we get to the spot. Now, we're gearing up. And mind you, I don't own waiters. So the Orvis Tigard store in Oregon was kind enough to loan me a pair of waiters that I used. So we're getting out. We're getting ready. I also borrowed spade casting rods, which I'd never spade cast before. We're gearing up and my buddy Brian, who is the fishing manager of the Orbis Tiger store, says, where are your fleece pants? And I'm like, what do you mean? (laughs) And he goes, you know, the pants that go over your pants and under your waders because the water is cold. And I'm like, no one told me I needed fleece pants, Brian. (laughs) So I put on my waders without fleece pants and then stepped into the river and realized why you need fleece pants. Oh, <laughs> dear.
1: Are we talking because... skin to waiters here?
2: No, no, no. Okay. I had pants on, but Woo. still, it, it didn't make that big of a difference. <laughs> At least not to my lower giblets. <laughs> yeah. They became my upper giblets
0: very
2: <laughs> So this is the coolest part of the story because... You can now picture me, and as people have seen me before, I am like an overweight heron, if you will, (laughs) in that I have very skinny legs, but a lot of upper body. (laughs) And so I am not good for the center of gravity, which it takes, in my opinion, to wait, (laughs) because I don't do it very often. I don't know exactly what I'm doing. And now I'm frozen from the waist down. So I get my spay rod that I've never casted before. And from what I've heard, a steelhead is called the fish of a thousand casts, right?
0: Right, right.
2: So now imagine this fat guy from Louisiana, (laughs) frozen from the waist down, who can't wade fish (laughs) at all, stumbling like a toddler who has just drank a bottle of whiskey into the Nehalem, holding hands, I'm not joking, with Brian Mars, who is leading me to the (laughs) spot. I have my fly dangling out of the rod, maybe 10 feet, as I stumble like a drunk to the spot, scared to death of waiting and that I'm going to fall in and drown. And as I'm waiting out there, feel a tug on my fly. No, no. way. That is dragging behind me as I stumble through the nihalum. <sighs> Lo oh, so and behold, y'all call it the fish of a thousand casts. <laughs> this coonass calls it the fish of zero casts. Oh <laughs> my god! Unreal! <laughs> I think quit. because I quit caught right there. a steelhead without ever casting
0: a fire. <laughs> oh my god!
2: Now it was what Brian referred to as a one salt, so it was a smaller fish. But Nobody it was a steelhead. Yeah. <laughs> and so that is the story, but it does not end there because I did not catch another fish for four days. Oh, So,
1: so it <laughs> was a it thousand came. casts
0: for one fish. Oh, dear.
2: <laughs> it did. It did the cast of a, uh, the fish of a thousand casts because I then casted another thousand and <laughs> more times and did not
0: catch another one. So. That's amazing. I appreciate this story so much because Corinne and I actually met out at Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon, right in the area. I actually lived in Tigard after uh, after college for a little bit, so we we spent a lot of time out there. And one of the reasons why I chose to move out there. Was the steelhead? You know, I've been a trout guy for forever, and um, I was really excited about the West Coast and chasing some steelhead. And I cannot tell you, as like a single-hand trout guy with no mentor and no local knowledge, just he wanting
1: didn't have a Brian to hold hands no, with, no,
0: just wanted to catch a <laughs> just wanted to catch a winter steelhead, you know. And I spent so many hours and days, and I still remember it was on one of those coastal rivers, and I'd spent literally all day standing in the rain swinging flies around Of course, didn't catch anything, which was usual for me at that time. And then this big buck steelhead came up and rolled most of his body out of the water, just 15 feet in front of me. We call
1: that the middle fin.
0: And I just, I was just, I dumbstruck, like I couldn't even cat. I was like, oh my God, they're here. (laughs) They're in here somewhere. So the fact that you caught one without having to even cast is pretty amazing. (laughs)
2: I thought you might enjoy that story. Oh, that that's was
0: fabulous. That oh one
2: that one was a good one. Um, the second day I did get fleece pants, Perfect. just so you know. Yeah. Uh, borrowed borrowed some from somebody and wow, what a difference fleece pants makes. Yeah. yeah. You Pretty got impressive.
1: a layer. I know that you don't have to layer in Louisiana.
2: No. Nope. No. But you got no, a layer up. No, here. no. The only thing we layer here is cheese and ham on a sandwich. <laughs> 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 no, it was um. I will say, though, that it was, a, it was an, uh, an awfully cool experience. I mean, I, I would definitely go back. I would love to try it again. Um, you know, one of the issues that I had that week that I was there was it was a extremely dry spring. And so the rivers were really low. Yeah. So it was uh, it was a much different experience probably than usual. Uh, it was also sunny the entire time I was there, right. which is not normal for
0: Oregon. Also, and Lucas, you have to keep in mind with steelheading, as I like to say, there are always multiple things that are wrong. Okay. <laughs> Like, it literally, like, it's too hot, it's too cold, it's been too, too dry, rainy. it's been too much rain. <laughs> it's a little early, it's a little late. Like, there are so many factors to line up. Like, there's usually multiple factors that are in the not, not good column, and that's sort of the way that one goes.
2: Well, then, I guess I don't feel quite as bad, because there were quite a few in the not good column. <laughs> but, for someone from Louisiana who doesn't like the cold and rain... That portion of it was awesome.
0: There you go. So
2: I can't complain there, and I did. Keep, I did catch a couple sea uh, run cutthroat nice. on nice. the first day. So not long after, I caught my first steelhead stumbling around.
0: That's and a cool I, fish. I like those guys.
2: It was fun. I, you know they're pretty, and it's you know again I just adds a species to the list that I would never caught before. And um, I will say that as a one handed caster, two hand casting is very different, but. Uh, having the right teacher did make it very fun, and yeah. I was able to get pretty good by the end of the first day at spay casting. The part I wasn't good at that I've learned since from other people is that the angle of attack is extremely important. Yeah, and And watching someone who knew how to cast at that 45-degree angle and then get everything out of that swing that they wanted— versus me that had like a big ass belly in it or you know all sorts of things like it doesn't just being able to cast the rod is not enough and it's just like it's just like what I do you know it's the same thing just being able to cast is not enough there's all sorts of variables that go into it but I enjoyed it and I thought you know after I left there I was like this is going to make a good story so
0: nah.
2: <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad that we added that one to the mix <laughs>
0: I love I it. Love it. well awesome well we appreciate you so much and uh and- and we want to make sure and give you a chance to tell the people how to get a hold of you if they want to come visit you in Louisiana any time of the year, because we know right. it's a yeah. year-round fishery, a year round. To, uh, to, come, to come visit and book a trip. Yeah, so you passed the pop quiz, so I
2: appreciate that. <laughs> um, yeah, so if people want to come down here and try to fish with me, uh, you can go to louisianalowtide.com. That is my website. Uh, There's everything you need there from booking to preparing. I have some really cool videos on there on things to bring on a practice technique that I call whack-a-mole because I feel like that's what Louisiana red fishing is a lot of times. These fish show up very close to the boat. And so uh, having those like very short and accurate cast in your pocket are going to make for a much better experience so louisianalowtide.com will get you to the website Uh, you can also contact me directly if you want at 225-718-9532 or you can shoot me an email at lvisit79 at gmail.com
0: i love it and if somebody's interested in the conservation piece and the black mangrove project where can they learn about that
2: so um, there's a cool write-up on it on uh, afta.org. So we uh, actually, before I was a board member, AFTA's Fisheries Fund uh, funded a portion of the Black Mangrove Project. So there's a good write-up there. And then I also started a nonprofit a couple of years back called Anglers Bettering Louisiana's Estuaries, or ABLE, And the website for that would be anglersbetteringla.org.
0: Okay. Cool.
1: Well, thank you, sir. It was so fun to virtually hang out for a minute and hear all the things.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. No, and I appreciate you all giving me the opportunity and and listening to my stories. Uh, It was fun. I enjoyed it.
1: You bet. Well, we'll talk again soon.
2: Yes. All right. Cheers. All right. Bye. Yep. Bye.